We've been seeing in the Beatitudes that everything flows from Christ. From the beginning to the end, He is the Alpha, the Omega. And uh, we begin by being paupers, poor in spirit, uh, receiving everything that we have from His throne by faith. So reading again, Matthew 5, 1 through 10. And seeing the multitudes, He went up on a mountain, and when He was seated, His disciples came to Him. Then He opened His mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Amen. Father, we thank you for this, your word, and I pray that as we dig into it, we would not only understand it, but love it, be changed by it, be conformed more and more to the image of the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray this. Amen. You may be seated. Well, we've come up to the seventh beatitude. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Why does he single out peacemaking above every other Christian virtue as an evidence that we uh, really are adopted as God's children? That, that's really what he's saying. Uh, he's saying when you are successful as a peacemaker, people are going to look at you and say, you must be a son of God. You must have grace. Because peacemaking, I think, is a remarkable evidence of God's grace in our lives. And I think even unbelievers recognize to some degree what a remarkable thing it is when people have peace and they're able to make peace in the lives of others. I was reading recently a historian who was looking at the time period from 1500 B.C. to 1880 uh, A.D. It's uh, about a 3,300-year period. And he said, during those 3,300 years, there were over 8,000 broken treaties. Not truces that were broken. We're talking full-fledged, worked out on paper or on clay tablets, whatever, <laughs> treaties that were broken. That's uh, an average of two and a half treaties broken every year uh, for 3,300 years. That's just astonishing to see how the wicked have no peace, as the Scripture uh, talks about. And so when Isaiah promises a time when God, by his gospel, will cause the nations to turn their uh, swords into plowshares, we're talking about something unprecedented in history. We're talking about something absolutely remarkable. Only the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ could enable peacemaking, true peacemaking, to occur on a national level. Of course, it's remarkable when we see uh, true peacemaking occurring in families as well. Uh, we really shouldn't be surprised when you consider total depravity and uh, the way it works uh, to find adultery and divorce and discord and anger and bitterness and all kinds of problems uh, within uh, marriage. What's really remarkable is when a family is so full of peace that it literally overflows in peace into the lives of other people. I mean, people stand back and uh, they take note of that because that is something that is unusual. It's not going to naturally occur. And even individuals uh, have uh, uh, many, many examples where stress and 
Other ways of lack of peace is evidenced. Um, I think just the, uh, the huge amount of psychotropic drugs that are being used is evidence of that. Uh, over the past, what is it, five or six decades, they say it's just an astronomical increase of those drugs to try to control anger and try to control um, anxiety and depression and all kinds of other negative emotions. It's basically peace by medicine. You like peace? Pop a pill, okay? And uh, I read um, a, a, um, a cartoon recently that kind of poked fun at how uh, we tend to use medicine to try to cure things that really flow from sin many times. Uh, anyway, this uh, wife was calling the doctor on the phone, says, Doctor, come quick, it's my husband. And the doctor on the other end says, What's the matter? Well, he got up this morning, took his vitamin pill, then he took his appetite suppressant and his antidepressant, and his tranquilizer. He also took an antihistamine and some Benzedrine. Then he lit a cigarette, and there was this explosion. (laughs) And it's kind of poking fun, you know, at uh, the prevalence of drugs to fix everything. So how do we avoid explosions and implosions? How do we receive God's peace so thoroughly that we're overflowing in peace into the lives of others? That's what it means to be a peacemaker. Well, Jesus, in his exposition of this beatitude, tells us how to do that. And uh, you look in your outlines, you'll see again that uh, the beatitudes are the outline for the Sermon on the Mount, and he gives an exposition in reverse order. So verses 21 through 26 are his exposition. How do we become peacemakers? Now, before we look at the practical steps that he takes on that, I want to look at four counterfeits to peace that are also implied in these verses. And the first counterfeit that people bring up is they say that peace is the absence of conflict. That's why we send UN peacekeeping forces, you know, to various countries, try to keep the people apart. If there's no conflict, we'll have peace. They're not dealing with the root issues. And a lot of families do the same thing. They're constantly trying to separate their kids and be peacemakers, sort of. Uh, Truce makers is what it really is. Get them into different rooms, get them so that we can have peace in the house. But that's really not the concept of peace that uh, Christ is uh, talking about in in this passage. Uh, The kind of peace that Christ talks about is a grace that is received from heaven that deals with inward problems. And yes, it does eventually produce outward conflict, but you can have this peace even when there is conflict all around you, all around you. Uh, Even the Beatitudes, I think, imply this because before you can get to the place where you're a peacemaker, there's conflict you're going through. All the other Beatitudes have to be in place. So what does it mean that you're mourning? Well, it, it means you've been confronted with your sin. It's not just your sin is glossed over. You're mourning over the sin that God has confronted you over. What does it mean to be meek? We saw it meant to tame a wild animal, a wild stallion or a wild person. And uh, that implies conflict to some degree as well. In fact, if you put absence of conflict before you put peace, you're going to have neither. So let's take a look at Christ's exposition. Let's begin at verse 21. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. Now, you're not going to find the second part of that phrase there in the Bible. Okay, the Bible said something a little bit different. 
actually quite a bit different. It didn't say you're in danger of having to appear before the council. Uh, what it said was, you will surely be put to death. Murder was the only crime in which there could not be a lesser penalty imposed. And what he said is, even if there is repentance, you have to put a murderer to death. It's not that you're in danger of facing a, a, a judgment. You have to receive judgment and you have to receive uh, the death penalty. There was no clemency uh, whatsoever before them. And so the Pharisees were less strict than the Bible on both the issues in verse 21 as well as in verse 22. With regard to murder, they sometimes just gave warnings. They let people off. They gave warnings. Hey, cut it out, guys. You're going to be in danger of judgment. Uh, now, I can't find any exact quote, but they were soft on murderers in this regard. And uh, in, in many ways, they resembled the modern courts of today, so we shouldn't be pointing the fingers at the Pharisees, you know. What we do is we give lesser penalties. We give warnings. We're not as tough. We're softening God's judgments and hope that there will be peace eventually. But what happens when you're soft on murderers? Murderers become more bold in their murdering, don't they? And that's true whether murder is national or whether it is individual. Deuteronomy 20 describes how to engage in war with a murdering city-state that has been hostile to you. He says, arm yourself to the teeth, Go up to that city, prepared to fight against it. And when you've gone before that city with all of your arms, then it says, then proclaim an offer of peace to it. There's <laughs> uh, peace through strength there. Now, if they accept your offer of peace, then what you do is you spare their lives, but you impose uh, reparations. You impose damages. They have to pay for the damages that they have caused as a, as a hostile state. If they don't accept the peace offer, you put all of their males to death. Okay, that was what Deuteronomy 20 said. That's how you deal with terrorists and rogue states that are, are, are causing trouble. Now, what will happen when you do that kind of a thing is it's going to make honest citizens say, whoa, we're in trouble. We better leave the city. Uh, we better maybe align ourselves with, uh, with Israel. We're not going to align ourselves with these terrorists anymore. But ignoring thought, uh, the interesting thing about Deuteronomy 20 says what they're doing there is engaging in peacekeeping. Uh, you can see it's a little bit different concept, you know, than, than we have of peacekeeping. So what's going on there is they're saying that ignoring those thugs does not produce peace. Passivity does not produce peace. Now, on the other hand, Scripture in the same book, Deuteronomy, warns us, don't meddle with other nations that you have nothing to do with. If they attack you, fine, you can fight, but don't meddle with this nation. He had a whole list of nations. Don't meddle with them. Now, America has done the exact opposite on both of those points. Uh, what we have ended up doing is coddling nations that we should be hammering, and we've ended up hammering nations we shouldn't be having any business of interacting with. Anyway, the point here is that stepping down and being soft always encourages evil. Well, the same is true on the individual level. If you refuse to fight evil in any and every circumstance, you're pursuing a wrong kind of peace. Passivism just encourages evil men to get more evil. Uh, Colt um, made uh, one of their editions of gun. It was called the Peacemaker. I thought, wow, that's a great use of language. That's a very biblical use of language, the Peacemaker. Okay, liberal gun control laws simply do not understand human nature. What they're trying to do is bring peace by saying, 
Citizens may never engage in conflict. Even if you're being attacked, leave that to the police officers. And it's just a false view of uh, peacemaking. True peacemaking is not going soft like the Pharisees did in verse 21, where they said, okay, you're going to be in danger if you don't cut it out. No, all murderers were executed. Look at verse 22. But I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment, and whoever says to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council, but whoever says, you fool, shall be in danger of hellfire. Now, this indicates God himself is at war against sinners. He's in conflict with sinners. Is he a peacemaker? We would say, yeah, he's the prince of peace. Of course, he's a peacemaker, but he does not pursue peace by ignoring all sin. And um, how he brings peace is by advancing his grace on planet Earth as well as bringing judgments in history. And eventually, there'll be the final judgment where sinners are cast out and cast into hell. But I want you to notice, too, here, the reference to the church council. Christ is saying this kind of conduct can eventually lead to church discipline. Let me just illustrate this. Um, I was talking with a a pastor from the PCUSA. It's a liberal denomination here in town. And he was telling me, yeah, I voted against the pastors being able to be uh, homosexuals in the presbytery. And then he kind of chuckled and he said, uh, I'm a right-wing evangelical in the denomination. And so I was trying to encourage him. But then I discovered he had homosexuals and abortionists coming to the Lord's table. And I really confronted him. I said, how can you say you're a right-wing evangelical when you're not willing to discipline these people, even for their own good? And he said, no, we don't want to have you know, conflict and divisiveness in the church. We want to have a peaceful church. Well, see, that's a false peace. That's peace without holiness. That's peace without truth. In fact, in Hebrews chapter 12, it says, really, it's peace without love because true love always disciplines, doesn't it? And discipline is for the good of the offender. And so for those who want peace without being willing to fight for peace, I would point them to the cemetery. You have lack of conflict and strife in the cemetery, but it's not God's model of peace, is it? Uh, the absence of something is not what peace is about. Okay, you could have the absence of conflict and just be dead, right? True peace is not just a cessation of war or the absence of war. Peace is resolving the problems that led to the war in the first place. Okay, it goes much, much deeper than what our modern so-called peacekeeping troops and other countries are engaged in. And one of the ironies that you will find in the Bible and I'm still not sure if I use the term irony right. Uh, Rodney corrects me from time to time, but I think this is right. One of the ironies that you find in the Bible is that those who are called the true peacemakers in the Scripture are frequently embroiled in controversy. Is that correct use of irony? Okay, he gave me thumbs up on that. Uh, Christ, he's the Prince of Peace, isn't he? And yet you have all kinds of conflict and controversy in the Gospels. Three times in the Gospel of John, it says there was division among the people because of him, because of Jesus. Um, Christ said, he who is not for me is against me. The Apostle Paul was called an ambassador of peace. And yet the people accuse him. They say, we have found this man a plague, a creator of dissension among all the Jews throughout the world. So why are these promoters of peace, which they really were doing, why are they at the heart of so much controversy? Let me give you a couple of scriptures that give you a clue. 
Isaiah 32, verse 17 says, The work of righteousness will be peace, and the effect of righteousness, quietness, and assurance forever. That's Isaiah 32, verse 17. God is saying that righteousness produces the kind of peace that he's interested in. Well, if people don't like righteousness, they're going to be opposing you, aren't they? They're going to be upset about that. So Christ brings peace by dealing with sin. Why? Because sin is the cause of the conflict, and you have to deal with the root cause, not superficially just deal with the outward conflict. James 3, 17 through 18 says much the same as Isaiah 32. It says, but the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable. First pure, then peaceable. Well, that's the order of the Beatitudes here. You've got to have heart purity before you can have, become peacemakers. If you reverse that order, what you're going to have is the ungodly peacemaking that the world engages in that's only interested in the upward up here. It's not dealing with the root issues underneath. The work of righteousness will be peace and the effect of righteousness, quietness, and assurance forever. So if you're interested in purity of heart, you're interested in the kind of righteousness that produces peace, it is guaranteed you will experience the last beatitude, persecution. You can see there's a logical order we've been seeing in all of these beatitudes. It is inevitable you will face persecution. 2 Timothy 3.12 says, All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. So if you're a biblical peacemaker, don't be surprised if people get mad at you. You know, they beat up on you. This is why David said, I am for peace, but when I speak, they are for war. So the first counterfeit that we've been looking at here is to say peacekeeping means the absence of conflict. Now, it will eventually produce the absence of conflict, but the two are not entirely equated. Peace goes much deeper. Counterfeit two is related. Let's read uh, verses 23 through 24. Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go your way. First, be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Christ is advocating more than a truce here. A truce is a ceasefire, right? you're not going to be shooting at each other for a little while, but you still hate each other, okay? You're not really reconciled. It's just giving each other a little bit of breathing room. So <clears throat> peace comes when the truth is known, when the issues have been settled, and the parties are committed to pursuing purity and righteousness. A truce evades the issues, whereas biblical peace conquers the problem. A truce stops some of the hostile exchanges, but peace is building a bridge over to the people who were formerly enemies. And sometimes that means pain. Uh, you know, church discipline is painful. It's painful for the elders. I mean, it's very, very difficult uh, to go through that, and it's painful for the people as well, but it produces, uh, usually, it produces godly reconciliation, deep purity, deep righteousness, and it produces peace within the church. So there are times where you're going to have to get mad at, well, not have to, but you probably will get mad at me as a pastor because I'm confronting. Sometimes the confrontation brings pain, but the fruits of it are lovely. The fruits of discipline are righteousness, says James. Third counterfeit is to insist that peace can only be on my terms 
and if everybody agrees with everything that I have said, then we'll be at peace, okay? And you can see that in verse 25. Uh, Some people are just pit bulls. I mean, they will hold on to an issue and they will not let it go, whether they are right or wrong or halfway in between uh, right and wrong. For them, it means everybody else has to capitulate uh, to my wishes. Now, just think of it this way. Scripture indicates every one of us has blind spots. And you say, I don't. But (laughs) that's because there's a blind spot. You just don't see it. Every one of us has blind spots, and if you, if you can come to grips with that fact, then when people are confronting you and you just think, that's ridiculous, you're going to say, well, I don't see it yet, but I'm going to pray, Lord, open my eyes and show me if there's any fault in me. Even if it's 10%, I want to repent of my 10% of that fault. I'm not just going to, like a, a bulldog, try to convince others of my viewpoint. Okay, then there's one last counterfeit needs to be dealt with, and that's the common assertion that all anger is inconsistent with peacemaking. Now, if you've got a New American Standard Bible or an NIV or an ESV, if you look at the margin of verse 22, it's probably going to say something like this, some manuscripts insert here without cause. Now, the reality is every manuscript has without cause except for three, and two of those, one of those is... uh, it's so damaged, the manuscript, that they're not even sure if it's missing there. And the other one actually has a correction where it's in, but they think the original guy left it out. So really, there's only one manuscript, and there's 2,328 that have it. It's clearly part of the text, okay, without cause. So what Christ said was, whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. So he leaves open the possibility some anger could be appropriate to the peacemaking progress, uh, process. Ephesians 4 does exactly the same thing. That's the great peacemaking passage. Uh, and verse 3 is the theme verse. It says, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. And he's given a whole bunch of ways in which you do that. Well, here's one of the commandments in that peacemaking cat passage. Be angry. It's a command. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath. So he's saying, okay, granted... Anger is dangerous. You've got to handle it carefully. You've got to resolve it before evening. You can't let it continue on. But there is a place for anger in the peacemaking process. Otherwise, we've got all kinds of contradictions in the, in, in the Bible. You've got Nehemiah, very godly anger that he had against some of the sins that were destroying the nation. You have Jesus angry at the Pharisees for the way they, they were robbing the people, the children of their bread. And you have Paul, very angry when he wrote the book of Galatians. Why? Because those doctrines of the Pharisees were absolutely destroying the church of Jesus Christ. If you don't get angry over abortion, there is something wrong. There is something wrong. So it's just a myth to say anger uh, is absolutely incompatible with the peacemaking process. There are times where it is perfectly appropriate. Now, I want to spend the remainder of the sermon looking at what true peacemaking is. And there's at least nine factors that I see in these verses that I think can help each one of us in a very practical way be peacemakers in our families, in the church, and in other situations. The first factor is that we need to learn how to control our tempers. And he warns about the danger of anger. That's verse 22. But I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. 
And whoever says to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council. But whoever says, you fool, shall be in danger of hellfire. Three times he repeats, danger, danger, danger. Okay, uncontrolled emotions are dangerous. They can cause great harm. And uh, it's not to say that anger is sinful. We've already seen, no, there can be righteous anger. But it's only to say, be very cautious about, uh, about anger. We need to learn how to control our tempers. And by the way, some people just leave their emotions be. You cannot do that. Your emotions are either sanctified to the Lord or they are being used by the world, the flesh, and the devil. They have to be sanctified. You have to learn how to grow in maturity in your emotions. Second factor that Jesus highlights is that we need to learn to kill the problem rather than the person. Too many times, a would-be peacemaker comes into the situation trying to resolve problems between two people, and he ends up just getting very angry and frustrated with one of the guys who's kind of stubborn, wanting to wring that person's neck, you know, and starting to attack the person. And before you know it, things are worse than when the peacemaker came in the first place. Okay, so we, we, we really have to watch out about this. Now, again, he implies... Righteous anger is possible when he adds that phrase, without a cause. But even with righteous anger, the focus of godly anger should be against the cause, not against the person himself. Okay, verse 22 speaks of a cause. Now, the reason that's important is that anger is always a destructive force. God designed it to be a destructive fire to destroy any obstacles to true righteousness being out there. So it's a godly, godly thing. God's angry with the sinners every day. He calls us to be angry. But here's the problem. Satan so subtly, so easily diverts our anger so that it is expressed in one of two ungodly ways. Well, and there's other things we could get into of how it can be overly uh, retributive. But anger is ungodly if we clam up or we blow up. Now, when you clam up, where is this destructive force of anger being directed against? Now, you might be thinking it's directed against somebody else because you're thinking, boy, that jerk, that wretch. I mean, you're thinking about it, but it's not actually being directed against him. You're stewing, and it's being directed against your spirit, against your emotions. It's poisoning you internally, and it can even produce disease within you. Uh, it's amazing the number of diseases that flow out of those negative emotions clammed up anger can produce. So climbing up is not going to help at all. Anger is a destructive force. You're destroying yourself by climbing up. Blowing up is no, no better. Where you're blowing up, in fact, that's what's going on. And You know, these words that are coming out, raka, you know, fool, and, you know, they're, they're saying names. Who's the anger being directed against? You know, those arrows are not being directed against the true enemy, which is the world, the flesh, and the devil. They're being barbs directed against an individual, against a person. And um, that's a real, a real problem. When couples get bitter with each other, I keep telling them, look, you guys are not each, other, uh, each other's enemies. Your enemy is the world, the flesh, and the devil. You need to gang up together against that and say, how do we strategize? Let's brainstorm together. There's constantly this, this enemy that's coming between us and making us so that we can't have fellowship. How do we gang up against this enemy? Anger, when rightly used, yes, sometimes it is expressed, but more often than not, people don't even know that you're angry. 
They just know you're not giving up. See, that anger is a motivational force. It, it just keeps you saying, no, I am not giving up on this. I'm going to keep praying about it. I'm going to keep addressing the scriptures to it. I'm going to keep working on this problem until it is licked. What the anger does when it's godly expressed is it keeps you from becoming apathetic. Apathy is not a good substitute for, uh, for, for anger. So kill the problem, not the person. That's the principle here. The third key ingredient to being a peacemaker is to choose your words very, very carefully. I, I think just the first three points we've been going through, you can see they're very, very closely related. Because if you're not controlling your emotions, many times that's where, with unguarded moments, we let fly with our lips and we do some, say some words that we cannot take back. We think, oh boy, I've wounded that person. Even when you've asked for forgiveness, you've wounded the person. And once a person is wounded, what does he do? He tends to close off communication. He tends to protect himself. He tends to withdraw, which makes it much harder to be a peacemaker and much harder for reconciliation to occur. Let me read you from Ephesians chapter 4. Uh, this is the peacemaking passage where he gives four rules, really important rules that you need to be, be thinking about. Ephesians 4 and... Uh, right after saying, be angry and do not sin in verse 26, and that gives place to the devil, verse 27, verse 29, he says, let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but only what is good for necessary edification that it may impart grace to the hearers. He goes on to say, if you don't do that, you're going to be grieving the Holy Spirit. But he's giving four rules here that should govern our speech. And if you don't have these four rules, automatically your anger has become an ungodly anger. First rule is that our speech needs to be good rather than corrupt. That means we, we should not be using the F word with each other. We shouldn't be corrupt in our language with each other. Second rule is that our f speech must be necessary or needed speech. And that's true. Even if you're not one of the people in conflict, you're a peacemaker coming in and you realize, whoa, this is a heated situation here, and you're about to say something that you think is clever or you think is really... You have to ask yourself, now, is this really necessary, what's coming out of my mouth? Is this needed? What is the impact that's going to happen? So he says it's got to be necessary speech. Third rule is that our speech must be edifying, which means to build up a person rather than tearing down that person. You see, when people know that you care about them, they know that you love them. When you're bringing correction, they're much more likely to receive that correction than if when you're bringing the correction. Every time in the past, they just feel like, you know, this guy is just always mean to me, always trying to make me feel bad. He just wants to get, he wants to get me. And then the last rule is that it must impart grace to the hearers. This means, because grace comes from God, right? This means our speech needs to be bathed in prayer. We need to be dependent upon the Holy Spirit. Lord, help me to say the right thing here. I don't even know what to say as a peacemaker coming into the situation. I ask for your grace. That's what he's talking about here. And the kinds of words that Jesus records in verse 22, raka and fool and other similar words, they're not helpful to the peacemaking process. I think you can see, being a peacemaker, it takes maturity. It is a hard thing to pursue. Fourth component of godly peacemaking is recorded in verses 23 through 24. Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, 
Leave your gift there before the altar and go your way. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Here's the principle. Don't wait for the other person to make the first move. That's the principle. So here's a a situation where the guy's come with his sheep, you know, he's got it in tow and he's at the altar almost ready to be offering up a sacrifice as an offering to the Lord and the Holy Spirit convicts him, you know, you, you really hurt that other person. And you're thinking, oh boy, this is going to be very inconvenient. Where do I leave the sheep? How do I do? He said, just don't worry. Leave your sheep there. Go get reconciled. Then come back and do the worship. Uh, yeah, offer up your, your sacrifice. So that's what's going on here. So he's saying, even though it's going to be inconvenient, do it. And perhaps the Holy Spirit has convicted you that you have hurt somebody. And uh, as you're arguing with the Spirit, you're thinking, oh man, this, they just need to have tough skin. And they've not approached me anyway, so why should I bother? Anytime somebody offends me, I talk to them. You know, I shoot with all barrels. So I just expect if they they got any problems, it's their problem. You know, they need to come and talk to me. And Jesus said, don't have that attitude. You are responsible to make the first move. Now, that's true whether you're at fault or whether the other person is at fault. In Matthew 18, the other person is at fault and you still have to make the first move. Here, you're at fault and you have to make the first move. So the principle, it doesn't matter what the situation, you are responsible uh, to do that. And um, not everybody is mature enough to make the first move, but you can model to others what true Christian peacemaking is. Now, there are other passages that indicate uh, you shouldn't be so easily offended. Okay, you need to develop tough skin yourself, but don't expect others to have tough skin. So he's saying, yeah, love will cover a multitude of sins. Other people have offended you, no problem. I'm going to deal with it. And it's only where there's just this gnawing within you that you have to confront them and get, get it dealt with, Matthew 18. But here he's saying, it doesn't matter how small the situation is, you are responsible to go and make sure they don't have anything they could hold against you rightly. Does that make sense? Be the first to make the move. The fifth characteristic of genuine peacemaking is that he values relationships over performance. Now, the verses I just read show that reconciling with a brother is more important than worship. And you might think, what could be more important than worship? Offering up a sacrifice. And he says, no, reconciling is more important than even that. So many times we get involved in service to the Lord We're busy with all kinds of important things that our relationships begin to be uh, suffering. And he is saying, no, you have got to value relationship over uh, over performance. Now, I should point out that just because you've tried to be a peacemaker, just because you've done what Christ has called here does not mean your brother is going to respond with joy or respond, uh, you know, properly. In fact, there may be times where you have asked for forgiveness, you've tried to be reconciled, or you've confronted them over their sin, and they're, they're not interested. They don't care about it. Romans twelve eighteen says, If it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. He's saying sometimes it's not possible, but you've got to try, right? You've got to try to do that. Uh, not everybody uh, is mature enough to be a peacemaker, so not everybody is going to have the values that Christ uh, gives in this chapter, but you can show you value relationship more than you do performance. Sixth principle 
is we need to be quick to resolve broken relationships. Now, it's obvious if Jesus is advocating, hey, right right off the bat, leave your gift at the altar and go and get reconciled, that he doesn't want any moss to grow. He doesn't want any time to elapse so that things can fester. He says, get on top of it as quickly as you can. Uh, One of the virtues of a peacemaker is that uh, he's very quick. As soon as he senses that he may have offended, he he goes and he says, I'm not sure if I offended you, but if I have, I really want to talk about it. Let's get reconciled. He's very quick to respond. The seventh principle can be seen in the words, be reconciled. Peacemaking is not about winning arguments. It's about winning people. Okay? You're, You're wanting to be reconciled. So be willing to consider the remote, remote possibility that you could be wrong or partly wrong, okay? It may be really remote, but ask the Holy Spirit to show you, uh, to open up your eyes to that. And you're not going to be able to win that other person very effectively if you're instantly on the defensive and you're using every argument in the book, even mean and unfair arguments, to show how they're at fault rather than you being at fault. So seek to win the person rather than winning the argument. And then principle eight is um, same verses, verses, well, actually verses 25 through 26. Try as hard as you can. It's not always possible, but try to make it a win-win situation rather than a win-lose situation. Now, I bring this up because there are some people, especially in reform circles, who uh, the moment there is an issue, they want to go to court church court or civil court, very litigious in their responses to to, uh, problems that come up. But using the courts, whether it's church courts or civil courts, should be an absolute last resort. I want you to see Christ's attitudes toward courts in, um, in these verses here. Let's see, it's verses 25 through 26. Agree with your adversary quickly while you are on the way with him, lest your adversary deliver you to the judge, the judge hand you over to the officer, and you be thrown into prison. Assuredly, I say to you, you will by no means get out of there till you have paid uh, the last uh, penny. Courts almost always end up being a situation that is so costly of time, of energy, of finances, of emotional stress and things like that, that it ends up being one person wins and the other person loses big time. Uh, and, And the reason for that is because courts are mandated to deal with justice, not mercy, okay? And they have to deal with you know, picayune technical details and the cross-examination of witnesses, and they can't deal with evidence that's not been presented before them in the court. They don't have the luxury of looking between the lines and trying to mediate and and reconcile people together. There's no room uh, for that. And so, again, it ends up where one person wins, the other person loses. This is one of the reasons I think Scott has had a a real uh, desire uh, to eventually start a mediation and, and reconciliation, because mediation and arbitration, there's so much more flexibility than what you have when you're before, uh, before a court. So right here, Jesus is assuming a situation where you're in the wrong or maybe partly in the wrong, and he says it would be much better for you, even financially, it'd be much better for you if you try to settle outside of court. Okay, so that's, that's, the, that's the situation saying if you've done something to infuriate an unbeliever, swallow your pride, seek to make amends as soon as possible outside of court. Don't hold out in the hopes that, hey, 
they're going to see that you're 30% not at fault, you know, in the courtroom. Um, uh, just try to, get it, uh, try to get it worked out. Even if you get a fair shake in the court, what's going to happen? It's still not likely to be a peacemaking process. You might win, but it won't be a peacemaking process. So he says it's much better for you, much better for your testimony. If you instantly acknowledge you're wrong, you agree to pay a fair settlement. And that's true today as well. I've seen people who um, have fought in court and they've lost and they've not only had to pay uh, the, you know, what they've owed, but they've had to pay the attorney fees and they've had to pay all kinds of other finances as these long drawn out battles have occurred. It's just not been something that has been worthwhile. Now, obviously, there are situations in our modern messed up courts where you know, you, you don't dare admit to anything because they're going to take advantage and just hammer you and you've got to have a lawyer and work through issues. But we're not talking about that here. The main focus, in fact, we could get into 1 Corinthians where he says, you know, believers should never take an unbeliever to court. And there's a lot of other tangential things we could get at. What I'm looking at here is try as much as possible to have a win-win situation. It's not always going to be possible, and there is a place for courts where you just go after the other person, you hammer them hard, and you know it's going to be a win-lose situation, and you're bound and determined you're going to win. There is a place for that. But as much as possible, if you're in the peacemaking process, try to make it win-win. Final issue that a peacemaker needs to keep in mind is the consequences. People think, ah, it's so painful to be a peacemaker. Is it worth it? Uh, so stressful to me emotionally. But you've got to realize, yes, there's pain. Yes, there's cost in being a peacemaker. But what are the costs, be long-term oriented, what are the costs of not peacemaking? And I think that's in part what verses 25 through 26 is talking about. It's not pure pragmatism. What it's saying is there's always a payoff when you do things God's way. And that's where I want to end. There's a dual payoff in this uh, beatitude. First payoff, he says, blessed are the peacemakers. God's blessing will rest upon you. Joy will come into your life. There's going to be that. And then the second payoff is testimony. You will be called the sons of God. They're going to say, this guy is remarkable. What's going on uh, in his life? So let me deal with a good testimony. Notice that it doesn't say they shall become sons of God. This is not a works salvation type of a thing. They shall be called sons. There's a big difference. They're already sons in beatitude number one. But here's where they're recognizing there is something different about these people here. They, they look like Jesus, okay? They look like the Father. See, if, if we're related to God, there's going to be some family resemblance that's going to come. Some of God's peacemaking is going to wear off on us. It's a fruit of the Spirit, right? God is not the author of confusion, but of peace. 1 Corinthians 14, 33. Romans 15.33, He is God, the God of peace. And the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace. So everybody who is putting on these attributes, more and more people are going to say, oh, that's what God is like. That's what a Christian is like. I can see that they have been with Jesus. But there is the payoff of happiness and blessing from the Lord as well. And we've seen every one of these beatitudes. God gives a payoff. It is worth it. He brings joy. He brings happiness. This is not just an objective. It's both objective as, as well as subjective blessing. Now, you could just think of Joseph. Joseph had every reason in the world to be vindictive against his brothers. You know, they were such scoundrels, trying to kill him initially, selling him into, into, into slavery. 
But when he became a peacemaker, think of the incredible blessings that resulted not just in his life, but in the lives of others. When God called Job to forgive his friends, who weren't really acting like friends, uh, you know, they were really being hard on him, but to forgive them, to pray for God's blessing in their lives, to receive the sacrifices and offer it up, God poured out incredible blessing into Job's life. Job 42 verse 10 says, And the Lord restored Job's losses when he prayed for his friends. That's the point at which God says, Okay, I'm going to pour out blessing that you cannot even hold in your life. It says, The Lord restored Job's losses when he prayed for his friends. Indeed, the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. And it goes on to talk about all kinds of other blessings that flowed out of his peacemaking. So you got the payoff of blessing you got the payoff of testimony. And I admonish you as uh, a, an ambassador of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Prince of Peace, that you imitate Him, that each one of you be peacemakers. Amen. Father God, we thank You for Your Word, and I pray that You would help us to live it out. Uh, we know that it's in ourselves a difficult, well, it's an impossible thing, but we come once again with Beatitude 1 as those who are poor in spirit, who do not have the ability to be peacemakers. And we pray that you would make our congregation from the youngest to the oldest to be a congregation of peacemakers. Bless us in this way, O God. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.